0: So first, I'd like to thank our very special guest today on the podcast for this episode of The Intuitive Revolution in Business. And um, my guest doesn't know that I've actually reviewed two of his books on the podcast and about to review the third one. So I'm I'm a bit of a fan of your work, even though um, I can't um, pretend that I've read all your books because you've written quite a few, haven't you?
1: I've been told that this year will be number 50, 5-0. So I haven't been keeping track, but publishers do. So, uh, uh, yeah, oh, wow. I'm uh, <laughs> turning out a big five zero this year.
0: And do you think you'll be writing more? Or what, what do you?
1: Well, oh, well, yes. In fact, uh, this morning I was working on my memoir that I've been working on for the last year or two and oh, wow I'm to, yes I'm about to publish my memoir this year and also I don't know if you know this Ange but um, in my spare time I write mystery novels and I've written uh, I've published nine mystery novels but I have five more that I've written that I'm going to be publishing over the next couple of years so uh, yeah I never stop I decided to create a job I wouldn't ever want to retire from
0: You know what? That's also my dream. So um, yeah, I would like to um, earn my living writing books personally, and I love memoirs too. How did you find memoir compared to writing nonfiction books?
1: Well, one thing is I was more emotionally involved in it because a lot of the stories I tell are stories of things that changed my life. And so I... I didn't realize how many times I would be shedding tears myself as I was writing about some particular incident in my life. Not necessarily, they were always sad tears. Some of them were tears of elation and joy about different highs I've experienced. Uh, But I would say the emotional undertaking was, I hadn't really predicted that that was going to uh, be the case. Mystery novels for me are just pure fun and nonfiction books Um, although they are about serious subjects, you know, like The Big Leap and The Genius Zone are about serious subjects, I try to write them in such a way as they're not heavy, you know, that they're uh, enlivening. Um, So uh, even though it's about something that could be considered heavy, like changing your life. um, But uh, with the memoir, I I felt unfettered to just dive in and tell the stories that tickled me you know that uh, that I wanted to tell and so um, maybe there'll be a 2.0 down the line that has different things in it more things in it but for right now I'm I'm complete with the one that I'm going to publish here this year
0: oh wonderful I look forward to that I've written one memoir personally and that was about the transition of my dad and I found it um very different, just like what you said, uh, from nonfiction, where it's mostly your intellect that speaks, or uh, fiction, where it's your imagination. Uh, I think memoirs really touch deep inside, almost the soul, I would say. And I I I really love doing that, but it's very, it's much more um, gut-wrenching in a way, not not necessarily in in a negative way, but it goes far deeper into the roots of an author, I feel. So, um, wow. (laughs) So uh, I wanted to go back to the first time you published a book when you were a young author. And I don't even know if you thought you could get a publishing deal. Um, What was the first book you published? And what do you love the most about it?
1: Oh, well, it changed my life big time. Um, I'll tell you exactly how it happened. I had I was just about to finish my PhD at Stanford but I hadn't yet really decided what I wanted to do whether I wanted to go in a university direction and teach at a university or did I want to go into private practice some of my friends that were in private practice they were driving around in Mercedes and Porsches and some of my friends that had gone the university (laughs) route were still trying to pay off their student loans, you know? And uh, so there was a lot of attraction to go into private practice, but that wasn't where my interests lie. I wanted to be a communicator, you know? I wanted to, I was the first person actually, listen to this, in 1972, I said to my professors at Stanford, wouldn't it be great if we could put this stuff on public TV? We've got such great information. And I remember they looked at me like I was some kind of crazy radical. But, you know, in a few years, there were these kind of shows, like John Bradshaw was one of the first one, and Leo Buscaglia, The Love Doctor. And pretty soon, we're on there. And, you know, it, it was an amazing thing to watch in my lifetime, because from the very beginning, I wanted to get all this great stuff out into the world instead of keeping it inside the ivory tower so anyway what happened was i went over to see a a new colleague that i just met named jim fadiman and i'd heard about him and uh, that he was into this new thing they call transpersonal psychology which included a spiritual element in the whole way of viewing human beings, and that was very different from orthodox Stanford psychology at the time. Absolutely, and, yeah. Uh, and so I went over to talk to Jim Fadiman. He was a design consultant over in the uh, engineering department, but what he really was was a kind of a freelance guru and problem solver. And so I went over to his office one day and I said, uh, "You know, here's what I'm interested in," and. He said, well, if you could write one book right now, what would you write? And I told him, I'd write a book about based on volunteering in my daughter's first grade classroom. Uh, At Stanford, there was a school on the campus that if you if your kids went there, they got a great education and they also had to volunteer to take part in experiments because it was the experimental place. And so if you're a psychologist, you're very used to going over there and doing experimental things. Well, I was doing something a little bit different. I sat in the corner of my daughter's first grade classroom because I was very interested in how I might be able to improve her experience based on what I knew as a counseling psychologist. So it occurred to me two things. One, this teacher spends an incredible amount of time getting kids settled down after going out to recess or after lunch. And I mean, I had a stopwatch on it. And literally, it was later discovered by a larger study that teachers were spending up to an hour and a half a day just getting kids herded around from place to place. And you can find the details about that study. Uh, it was done by a man named Eaton Conant. And uh, it's quite a famous study in the educational area. So I came up with an idea. I knew lots of centering activities like relaxation activities and short meditations and things that I used in my uh, practice with people. So I wrote a little book called The Centering Book And at the time, I was just going to pass it out to teachers in a mimeograph form. So anyway, I went over to see Jim Faderman. And he said, well, what are you working on? And I said, "Um, I'm writing this little book called The Centering Book, which is full of things for kids, teachers to do with kids in classrooms to get them centered quickly. And he said, wow, he said, I could sell that. And I said, what do you mean sell that? And he said, oh, you didn't know I'm a, I'm a, acquisitions person for Prentice Hall Publishing Company back East. Well, I said, I went into immediately a book pitch and I just, you know, went into pitch mode. I think it was my first pitch. And uh, I said, you know, this book could sell not just thousands to teachers, but hundreds of thousands. And he said, yeah, I get it. And he said, when can you have me a draft? I said, Just off the top of my head, I said three weeks. I didn't even own a typewriter at the time, by the way. I had to go borrow or rent a typewriter to do my typing stuff on my dissertation and everything. So, um, and I was literally living on $40 a week as a starving graduate student at the time, very familiar with large jars of peanut butter and top ramen and all the essentials that starving graduate students eat. Well, I made good on my deadline, I borrowed a typewriter. And I set it up. And at night, I would just crank like crazy from when I finished classes until midnight or so when I keeled over. And then I'd be up again at six o'clock going again. And so I wrote this entire little book, the centering book in three weeks. And it turned out to be a little gem when I turned it in. The publisher went wild over it, and a couple of cool things happened. They got it as a selection of a teacher's book club. So the first month, lots of attention went out. And one of the, uh, one of the big right-wing organizations banned my book, which was the greatest thing that you can ever have to a book. They said it's full of yoga postures, and yoga is... <laughs> devil's work or something like that you know anyway they were just really critical of it some group down in um, Dallas Texas I think it was but they did me the greatest favor (laughs) because I always thought when I published other books I should send them down a uh, preview copy and say could you please ban this before it's out Uh, (laughs) so uh, because many times I'd be sitting on the beach in Maui for a vacation thinking Thanks to that organization for uh, the royalties. But anyway, to make a, uh, a long story short here, I I wrote this little book called The Centering Book. And instead of maybe 5,000 copies or 10,000 copies, it sold like 60,000 copies the first month, something like that. And I'd gotten literally an $800 advance from the book. Um, and so, right away, as soon as this first month was out, the publisher was on, hey, do you have another book in you? And I said, yeah, I got a ton more stuff like the centering book. And they said, hey, let's call it the second centering book. I said, fine. That one took me about six months. So within a year or so, I had this big bunch of books out there in the education domain. And I kept publishing more and more and more. So listen to this. I'm sure you know who Jack Canfield is, Chicken Soup for the Soul. Well, long before Chicken Soup, he wrote a book called 100 Ways to Raise Self-Concept or Self-Esteem in the Classroom. They sent me that book to look at, to ask whether they should publish it or not from Prentice Hall. And so I'd never heard of Jack before, but I was reading through this. And uh, I said, wow, this is great stuff. This is exactly what education needs more of, is self-esteem activities and processes and teaching kids how to communicate and teaching kids how to listen. Those kinds of games were in that uh, book. And so I said, hey, not only should you publish this book, but I guarantee you it's going to be a classic in the education area. And you know, by this time I'm about one year out of graduate school and here I am sounding like the expert in what's going on <laughs> in education. But because I'd sold 60,000 books the first year, I suddenly was the expert. And that was just a gigantic blessed way to happen. The same thing happened later with our book, Conscious Loving. We, um, it, it came out in around 1990 or 91 and interestingly enough, the month it came out was the same month they started the Persian Gulf War. So we were supposed to be on Oprah and all that, and all that was canceled in favor of um, you know, war things. So it wasn't until the paperback came out a year later that we ended up getting our Oprah appearances and that kind of thing. So, And it was great in a way because... Um, by then the paperback was out, and the the hardback had done well. But you know, always a paperback is going to sell a lot more. And so, uh, you know, rather than selling a hundred thousand fifteen dollar books, we sold a million seven dollar books. And so it worked out really, really well. So at first we thought we were, you know, kind of thwarted by having the war start. <laughs> we 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 were supposed to be out on tour with our book, uh, but. It turned out to be a great blessing in disguise as many things that look like a setback will do
0: did that end up in your memoir or or not just yes uh, it's yes. actually
1: uh, the story is in uh, oh yeah uh and also i got the same gift with my book learning to love yourself uh because that came out i wrote it the first summer i was with katie 42 years ago by the way we just celebrated our 40th wedding anniversary that's wonderful! Congratulations. Yeah, thank you.
0: Yeah, and I almost thought, you know, I'm interviewing you, but uh, really, Katie is a co-author on many of your books.
1: Yes, yes, she's. Uh, yes, our book, especially Conscious Loving, uh, leads to a funny story. Before we were going to be on Oprah, the producer called, and uh, and said um, that. W- which one of you is the talker we want to focus on the one of you that's the main talker and of course the reason we wanted to be on the show together was to show equality because up until then they'd had almost always single male relationship experts or married male relationships experts but we wanted to go on and show that our relationship is what it is you know and so um we said uh uh-uh. uh you know we we are both the talkers and then he said no we're really set up to focus the camera on one person at a time not on two people at a time and we said well change that so that people can see us interact with each other not just two talking heads in separate boxes and so anyway they did so and set it up a little differently so they could focus in on us as a relationship as well as being the relationship experts
0: that's wonderful I'm so glad this happened it's so important I can see that
1: <laughs> yeah I probably wouldn't be sitting here talking to you unless that had happened because <laughs> suddenly you know we. Suddenly, after Oprah, we're instead of selling ten thousand books a month, we're selling ten thousand books an hour. You know, and it's really life changing. And and other times we were on there uh, was also great, but uh, that first time was kind of like sitting in your car at zero and then hitting the accelerator and going to sixty in ten seconds. People often ask me what's it like being on Oprah, and I said, well go down to the coffee shop and order 10 shots of espresso <laughs> and go pop, 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 pop. And then wait, wait about an hour. That's what it's like, you know, a lot of attention and pressure.
0: Mm, I can imagine. I'm curious to see how did you get to work with CEO and executives from that place oh. of writing all those books? Because one of my favorite books of yours is The um, the Corporate Mystic. Um
1: yes. Yes, long before The Big Leap came out, which is widely used in business now, uh, that book, The Corporate Mystic, was a nice little business bestseller for several years. And uh, I can always tell when some program about it has been on because book sales will pop up in odd places like Bangalore, India. I noticed there was a big wave of uh, people buying The Corporate Mystic in Bangalore, India a while back. Uh, Well, here's how that happened, Ajit. I had the good fortune of meeting a well-known business consultant named Kate Ludeman. And I met her also in the best possible way because she read one of my books. Uh, that, actually, the book I just mentioned, Learning to Love Yourself, she read that book and, it, and found it very profoundly life-changing. And uh, she was a, a business consultant and also worked at a uh, electronics firm in Silicon Valley. She was my co-author years later on The Corporate Mystic.
0: I read the book, yeah.
1: She got in touch with me and said, hey, could you do this stuff that's in Learning to Love Yourself with business executives, but maybe not call it Learning to Love Yourself. (laughs) Call (laughs) Call it something like improving your leadership skills. And so she brought me in to a number of corporations and sent her executives to me. And that was how I got into that area because I had zero business training. I've never made a budget in my life. And thankfully to my brilliant, awesome wife, Katie, I haven't had to touch a checkbook in 42 years because she actually likes to move the money around. And so um, I, uh, I have never been good at those kind of numbers. And so fortunately, she spares me from that. But anyway, who would have have predicted that I would have ended up a business consultant later on? But it was working with those executives, which gave me the idea for the big leap. uh, Because the big leap is about two big things. It's about what I call the upper limit problem, which is what your head keeps bumping against as you go higher and higher. It's the automatic unconscious ceiling you put on yourself based on old limiting beliefs. And so I explored that because all these big executives, these brilliant people I was working with would do the dumbest things in their personal life. How is it that a person who's got a, degrees from Harvard and MIT would have an affair with his secretary and think he could keep it secret. You know, those kinds of uh, things that I would get brought in to deal with. So I got to look at the upper limits problem in a way that often involved tens of millions of dollars high consequences. And so I mapped out that territory in the big leap. And I also mapped out the territory of how to get into what I call now the genius zone. That's the title of my new book, the sequel to the big leap is the genius zone. And what I found was that each of those really high functioning executives almost always had a place of real genius in themselves that they were not using or that they were underutilizing. Some of them sort of knew what it was, but many of them, I would ask them, what do you think your true genius is? Uh, uh, I've Never thought of it. Interestingly enough, I'd go to a couple of their colleagues with their permission and I'd say, what do you think Edna's genius is? Or what do you think Jim's genius, true genius is? And the other people could rattle it off just like that. But that person couldn't own it fully and couldn't go all the way with it because they hadn't mapped out the territory. So I map out the territory in The Big Leap and show exactly how to, how to get out from under your upper limit problem and stay rooted in your genius zone. That's also where the new book, The Genius Zone, comes in, because I always say The Big Leap is about getting into your genius zone, and The Genius Zone is about how to stay there 24 hours a day
0: which I think you say you are now doing most of the time and you've never been happier, right?
1: You know, it's interesting. I, I made the decision in the nineties to do everything I could to be living a hundred percent in my genius zone by the end of the century. And I pretty much met my goal by the end of the century. So for the last 20 some years, I've been focusing on how to stay in that genius zone all the time. And that's an art form. Mm. It's also a science. That's what I document in the genius zone. Uh, But my life now is 100% in my genius zone and then getting around from place to place or getting six hours sleep a night or whatever I do. Uh, I'm not necessarily in my genius zone for six hours a night. I, I sleep from 10 to four, get a lot of my writing done in the early morning hours. and But I uh, the rest of my life is pretty much spent doing the things I most love to do and doing things that make my biggest contribution to other people, like what you and I are doing right now. Uh, I probably spend three or 400 hours of my life every year doing interviews and podcasts and radio shows and things like that. And to me, that's a good use of my time because that's obviously going to affect hundreds, thousands maybe even millions Mm -hmm. of other people. So uh, these days uh, I'm 77 now and I'm in great health. But I don't like to go to the airport too much anymore, unless I'm going to Maui or someplace I want to go on vacation. So uh, when people call my office uh, to ask me to do speeches and things, the first question they ask is, can he do it virtually? (laughs) uh, (laughs) Most of the time these days I can, but uh, uh, I do very few things where I have to fly to New York or anything anymore decided to do most of my travel time for going on vacations although I live in paradise here uh, I live in a little town um, Ojai California which is a little mountain valley town about 10 or 11 miles from the ocean so if I want to go to the beach I can just whiz down there even on my bike and uh, I'm an avid e-biker I uh, have an electric mountain mm-hmm. bike that I ride all spring and summer long and, well into the fall around here until it gets to be rainy season and uh, so i try to stay in uh, good health uh, but i uh, i don't want to waste any of my precious time here on earth doing anything i don't love to do
0: yeah so that's really wise that's that's where i'm at as well and um Mm. i yeah I, i came to it probably in a very different way than you did but um I find my zone of genius is really where I want to live as well. I was going to ask you, what is your zone of genius? But um, I'm aware of the time and that we probably have only 10 to 15 minutes left. And I wanted to kind of gear our conversation towards spirituality and intuition, because that's the thing in business, because that's the theme of the podcast. And my next question was... Uh, How did you get to talk spirituality with your CEOs and all these um, big wigs that you got to work with accidentally almost?
1: (laughs) Yes. There's a a key story that I heard once, which made a big impression on me. I learned to meditate in the early 70s. So I've been a meditator now for 50 years, exactly 50 years this year, I believe. And um, I've done various types of meditation, but the one I'm talking about Now TM, Transcendental Meditation, is the one I learned in the early 70s um, and have continued to do. So I got into meditation and I heard this story from the teacher, uh, Maharishi, who came to America back in the 50s and was trying to teach meditation, but nobody was paying any attention. And the reason was he felt very blissful inside. And so he taught. He said, if you, experience, if you do meditation, you'll feel more bliss in your life. And he couldn't figure out why that wasn't selling in America. And so he went back and kind of retired for a while to his place in India, his cave or whatever, his uh, ashram. And he meditated on this. And he said, oh my gosh, I'm speaking from my state of consciousness. I'm talking about something that nobody has any experience of. So he said, Americans are so stressed out, I'm gonna go back again and talk about meditation as something that reduces stress and relieves stress and brings about a state of inner relaxation that will then Lead to bliss, possibly, but the first step is to speak into people's existing state of consciousness. So they're not just throwing me out as some kind of kooky bliss person from India, you know, with a robe. And so it turned about, out to be a genius move because he started talking about it from that point of view. And an interesting thing happened. Uh, a graduate student in um, Herbert Benson's lab at Harvard named Danny Goldman, Daniel Goldman, who later wrote the book, Emotional Intelligence, decided to do meditation and look at its effect on blood pressure. If it, indeed, if it indeed reduced stress, it should bring down a high person's blood pressure, hypertension. And so he did that and it worked. And so it gained fame pretty quickly. Doctors were recommending meditation and things like that. So I did my own version of that, in the spiritual—I mean, in the business domain. And here's uh, my wife and I um, call it smuggling donkeys. I don't know if you've ever heard the uh, old story about the uh, the border crossing back in the Middle Ages, and uh, some uh, wily person is bringing a. Uh, a camel caravan through just packed with stuff. And the border guard is convinced the old guy is a smuggler, but every Friday he comes there, he searches him, he passes through, comes back again with the next, on um, uh, next week. And finally the border guard's going to retire. And he says to the old smuggler, he says, look, I know you've been smuggling something here uh, illegal for the last uh, 20 years. I'm going to retire. I'm not going to bust you. What is it? The old guy says, donkeys and so he was smuggling donkeys the entire time so uh, my wife and i used to call me going into a corporation a donkey smuggling operation uh, because what i did with executives i didn't really talk about spirituality because in my opinion spirituality is something that should be demonstrated and radiated not theologized about Mm -hmm. you know that if you have a spiritual life that's working you know, you're going to look lit up in various ways. You're going to probably have a smile on your face. You're going to look excited about life. You're going to uh, be uh, talking about something you're passionate about. And to me, if a person is looking at me right now and says that's spiritual, great. That's that's part of me. That's what I'm trying to communicate. But it's not something I want to talk about all the time because words kind of cloddy up that area. Yeah. So I um, I would talk to executives about Getting a little time off from stress, you know, dropping out of, you know, I'd say your job is incredibly stressful. And you need a little way now and then of dropping out of that. Uh, meditation is one way. Here, I'll show you a few different things and you can choose which one you want to do. But I want you to take 10 or 15 minutes now and then and just. Get out of your mind and um, out of that stress traffic jam up in your mind. And so, you know, talking to them that way, it's certainly easier now because, you know, friends of mine like Jack Cornfield and folks like that have taken Buddhist meditation, uh, mindfulness meditation, into tons of companies now. So I'll often have people that come to me that have been meditating. 20 years and so that's a whole different world now than it was when i was first starting back in the uh, early 80s
0: Mm. and um do you consider yourself intuitive gay i do yeah how does your intuition speak to you
1: it speaks to me often in for in form of images in my mind that have a kind of a special look to them. I can't really describe it too well in words, but um, like uh, I'll give you an example. I had a 10 second intuition that led to a $10 million reward. Three years. Great,
0: that's, that's actually my next question. Share a yeah. story of intuition in your career that had a, an incredible impact.
1: Oh, wow. I uh, Yes, in the late 90s, I met a movie producer named Steven Simon. And he had, he had produced a number of uh, commercial movies like uh, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure and uh, Somewhere in Time was one of his big ones. And he had just done a movie called What Dreams May Come with um, Robin Williams. And you might remember that movie from back in the 90s. a beautiful movie, won an Academy Award for some of the visual effects in it. And, but the movie didn't do well at the box office and Stephen had to start looking around for something um, different to do. And so he and I started uh, pitching spiritual movies to hollywood studios like we pitched the idea of making movie of conversations with god which they hated uh we pitched the idea of making a movie with uh, richard bach's book illusions uh oh, very very popular was, spiritual
0: yeah, yeah that was the book that set me up for my, oh, my really? spiritual path yeah
1: yeah well well we knew richard very well and we had the the rights to it for a little while and so um but we couldn't do anything with it because we got thrown out of every meeting in Hollywood we went to no people studios would say people aren't interested in spiritual movies you know anyway so we were determined so I was meditating you know regular TM meditation one morning about 5 a.m getting ready for my morning writing thing and um, at the end of meditation I had this little flash of a picture and it was the picture a little image of kind of like hot wiring around Hollywood, um, going around Hollywood rather than trying to beat Hollywood into making the kind of movies we wanted to make. And instantly I saw how to do it. I mean, I don't think it took a second to kind of see the whole picture. So my picture was that, We would hire scouts to go out to film festivals and find moving, deep, spiritual content movies that Hollywood wasn't touching. And we were surprised to find there were quite a few of them. And so my idea was send these scouts out, find the movies get permission to put them out on DVD for one month, then the filmmaker owns the, everything else. And we send them out to an exclusive group of subscribers. And I even had the idea, the Spiritual Cinema Circle. And I looked into so, that. I wanted to ask yeah, you about it. What a coincidence. Yeah, oh, beautiful. Well, I called Stephen after this little 10 second or 10th of a second flash. And I said, listen to this idea. And I described how we would do it. And he said, oh my God, that's it. And, uh, and he became the spokesperson for it uh, because I, I was at that point, it was 2003 or four. I was had already sworn off after a million, 1.2 million frequent flyer miles after Oprah. I was really getting tired of traveling. So I said, would you be my poster boy on the wall because I don't want to do the PR for this? And he said, absolutely. And so he became the spokesperson for it. And I kind of set up the business operations. Well, interestingly enough, our first month, we got 2,500 subscribers, which just blew the lid off our expectations. I thought if we could get you know, several hundred or maybe a thousand, but we got 2,500, the next month, we got, uh, so it might went up to 3,700, something like that. So within a couple of months, we were into pure profitability and we were paying our scouts well, which they loved. And uh, what a job it is to go to lots of film festivals and watch spiritual (laughs) movies, you know, a lot of people would pay for that job. Um, But we had this wonderful uh, acquisitions person named Anna Dara, uh, still dear friends of ours that, I sold the business in 2008. So I was really in it for about four years. Um, and then we sold it to Guyam, big company that was able to manage it. By the time I sold it, it was kind of driving me crazy because it had gotten too big. Uh, you know, it really needed a sincere, trained, MBA-type business person to run it. And so we got ourselves one of those. and uh, they kept running it. It uh, finally dissolved around uh, 2017 or 18 after, gosh, you know, 15 years at least.
0: That's fascinating, especially since it's the one thing I wanted to ask you about, but you answered it because I asked you about a story of intuition. So um, I That's love intuition it. intuition for you. Exactly. Well, <laughs> I'm not that surprised. <laughs> I'm not that surprised. How, how do you think success has changed you? and
1: has it oh gosh what a question let me i don't think anybody's ever asked me that let me just tune into that for a second ah it's definitely changed me uh in my view mostly for the better although i bet you could find people that would say he's a lot harder to get hold of now than he was 10 years ago or 20 years ago. Um, I think that's probably true because I'm very zealous of protecting my time to spend the time with my key loved ones. And uh, to me, the highest priority in my life is the flow of loving connection between me and Katie. Everything else keys off of that. So that's where all my attention is always going first and foremost. And you know, it that's working well. We haven't exchanged a harsh word or a criticism this century. You know, wow. so it's been well over 20 years since either one of us said a critical word to the other or said something unpleasant to the other. So um we learned a lot about that back, you know, during the first 20 years of our relationship. And we actually take our own medicine, whatever what all the things we talk about in conscious loving and the conscious heart and Conscious Loving Ever After, uh, that's our book for couples at midlife and beyond, uh, Conscious Loving Ever After. All the things we talk about in there, we actually practice ourselves. And so it's, uh, it makes life very simple and uh, all the principles like open and honest communication, sharing what's ever in your heart, listening carefully to the other person, appreciating the other person, all of those things that are in our books, we actually do those things on a daily basis. And so it makes for a very rich experience uh, from a day-to-day standpoint. My second priority is to live in a state of completion with everybody significant in my life. And by that, I mean significant. Incompletion is when you haven't said something that's in your heart to another person or you haven't listened to what's in their heart that's incomplete to me. Or incompletion is when you start a project and then let it go without formally saying, okay, I'm going to drop this. And so a lot of people have these incompletions eating at them all the time. I worked with a man who had been having a secret affair with his secretary every Tuesday for three years. And what was the outcome of that? Well, During that time, he had such back pain that he'd had something like 100 massages and 175 chiropractic treatments. All his body was screaming at him for living to uh, a double life. And so as soon as he got clear about that, what happened to the back pain? No back pain. Ah, that's to me a miracle, and we as human beings need to claim our genius, we need to claim the miracle that lives at the heart of ourselves, there's that wonderful quote I use in um, the genius zone, if you bring forth what is within you, what is within you will save you, it's actually from the gospel of Thomas 2,000 years ago, but it's true today, isn't it, that if you open up a conversation with your genius, your unique abilities, your life takes on a whole different quality. If your life is about finding what you love to do and finding out what makes your biggest contribution to other people, to me, that's life at its finest. That's the use of your genius. You're using it for yourself and you're using it for other people. That's what we ought to make our lives about. That's what my life is about. And uh, the more everybody's life is about that, I think the happier they'll be.
0: No, I can, I can only agree with you. And I love that uh, authenticity in, in what you do um, about walking the talk. So my last question that I ask all my guests is what would you say to someone who's sitting on the fence about using intuition in business?
1: I would say to that person, our job in business, like I say in the corporate mystic and in the big leap, our job in business is to make the most of ourselves, to reveal all of who we are. And that's especially your genius, what your unique abilities are, what you most love to do. People can tell if you're doing something you love to do. Also, what is it of yours that makes your biggest contribution to the well-being of people around you? And like my old mentor, Abraham Maslow, used to say, it doesn't matter if your genius is a symphony or making a soup. The two are exactly the same in calling forth that special part of yourself. So whether you're a symphony writer or a soup maker this week, go about it with all of your love into it. And I bet people will say, "Mm, boy, that's a good tasting soup.
0: And, you know, it's funny you should say that as well, because I believe intuition comes through the heart. So and and that's not a common belief. A lot of people talk about the mind, the third eye. But I think if it comes through the heart and you are definitely a heart centered man, then it makes complete sense that you should use your intuition without even knowing that you're using it. And I the way you use the word genius for me equals the way I use intuition. It's the same Mm. thing. It's that connection to the ultimate core of who you are.
1: Yeah, and it's a very special thing that can be actually cultivated. You know, many people may think you're born with it, but you can actually I know my intuition has gotten a lot better the more I meditate and the more I find a place of stillness inside me, it really seems to come forth uh, a lot more easily and gently.
0: So I want to thank you, Gay, for all the time that you spent with me and my audience. I'm truly honored. Um, I also am aware of your time and the fact that the room needs to be used by your wife. Um, (laughs) Yes. (laughs) uh, I maybe will have you again. I don't know. We'll definitely have you soon because I'm going to review The Zone of Genius. Um, Oh, good. And yeah, is there anything else that you want to leave our audience with?
1: Hmm. I didn't ask you this. What part of the world are you in today?
0: So I'm in the UK, but I'm actually from Paris. I'm French. Oh. Um, and I live in Bristol, which is an hour and a half. It seems like nothing uh, from yes. London, but right at the border between England
1: and Wales. I know it over there. My wife and I did a bicycle touring book of uh, England, Wales, Scotland, and Ireland uh, back in the uh, early 80s. We were avid bicyclists, and so we laid out a great uh, tour. I don't know if the book is still available or not, but it was our touring book of the UK.
0: Wow. So you've been around the UK then? Mm.
1: Yes. And uh, interestingly enough, I've been so blessed weather-wise, I, there were a couple of times in Scotland where we got rained out, and just had to hide in our hotel room for a couple of days, <laughs> park our bike. But um, most of the time, we were able to get around just fine.
0: Well, my um, one of my local English friends says that the sun always shines on the um, on the blessed, no on the pure of heart. I think that's what she says. Oh, so there you good go. To hear. <laughs> Okay. Thank you so much. Thank you for all my audience and see you again for another episode next week. Bye for now. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Business Intuition Podcast. If you like this episode, make sure you subscribe, give us a rating. And if you haven't done it yet, write a review so that more listeners can enjoy this podcast. Don't forget to join my free group on Facebook, Business Intuition for Female Entrepreneurs. And go onto to my website to download my free workbook on the four steps to trust your intuition in business. My website is theintuitionrevolution.co.uk